All right, if you'd open up to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 2, we're going to, uh, Colossians, sorry about that. Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, and we'll be picking it up at uh, kind of the verse we left off at last week at verse 10. And uh, so as you turn in there, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just love you, Lord. And um, we're just so grateful, Lord, that there still are people throughout Kitsap County, throughout Western Washington, throughout America and throughout the world. There are still people who are hungry for your word. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, on this Sunday, that throughout Kitsap County and throughout the world, that there, there would be the preaching of your word, the preaching of your true word, not the false wisdom of man. I pray, Lord, that you give us the strength and the courage to stand firm on your truth, even in a culture that loves not truth, that we would stand for Jesus, even in a culture that hates Jesus. And so I just pray, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would equip us uh, to be your people. And, uh, and I pray, Lord, that, you know, the People that are here today, they came to hear your word proclaimed, your truth, not the faulty, deceptive wisdom of man. We get enough, more than enough fake news. We don't need fake news proclaimed from this pulpit. So I pray, Lord, that you would cancel the man and that you would anoint me with your spirit and empower me to proclaim your truth so that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray that you give everyone here the courage to test what they hear from this pulpit and to test what they hear throughout the week, to test all things with your word and whatever fails that test, that it would be rejected. I pray that uh, you give us uh, understanding uh, to, uh, to accept and understand the truth proclaimed today and empower us by your spirit to apply these truths to our lives so that we could be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Okay, so Colossians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 10 to 23. I don't know how far we'll get into this, um, but it, the, the theme here, and it, it kind of was the conclusion last week, because Jesus is fully God incarnate, we're complete in Christ. We don't need Jesus plus something else. Jesus is enough, okay? And, um, and so because Jesus is God... He's God the Son become a man. Because he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, he keeps us in existence. And because he's the redeemer, the savior, who paid the price for our sins, and he's the firstborn over creation, the ruler over creation, it doesn't get any better than that. We are complete in Christ. Okay? And so Jesus is our wisdom. When we want wisdom and knowledge, we turn to Christ and we turn to his word. And yes, God does reveal things to us through nature, outside of the Bible, okay? But even those things that we learn, we better test it with God's word. God, God's truth does not contradict itself in any way, okay? And, um, and so Jesus is our wisdom. We do not need the world's false wisdom. We we have come complete circle. This might be an indication that we are in the last days. I, you know, I don't know for sure. I'm not a prophet, but uh, it seems like we're coming full circle. We're right back in Genesis three, the lie in the garden that uh, men shall be as gods. That if we disobey God and start our own agenda, we could reject His tree of life. We can reject His paradise and come up with our own immortality. And um, our own perfection, we could perfect ourselves and we can become gods. That's, you might think, wow, that's, uh, that's really stupid stuff. Only idiots would, would believe that. Well, um, Bill Gates, the former President Obama, um, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, their favorite philosopher teaches all of those things. So it's a new, modern, transhumanist, artificial intelligence version of the same lie that went back to the serpent in the garden. 
when he deceived Adam and Eve. And uh, Jesus is our wisdom. Okay? And um, we don't need the world's false wisdom, and therefore we should be content uh, with Christ. So in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 is what I preached on last week. And Paul said, I'm just going to read that to set the, the table for this sermon. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So anybody who builds a philosophy, builds a, 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 a set of beliefs that they claim to be wisdom, if it's not built on the foundation of Christ, and if it's opposed to the teachings of Christ, we should not allow ourselves to be deceived. Why? Why is it so important to build the foundation of our wisdom and knowledge on Christ and to build our lives upon Christ? Verse 9, for in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Paul's not denying that Jesus is a man. Okay? But he's saying he is also God. Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. He was God, the second person of the Trinity throughout all eternity, but at a point in time, he became one of us. He added a human nature without subtracting from his divine nature so that he is fully God and fully man. If Jesus was not fully God, then people, he, Jesus would have to correct people for bowing before him. Proskuneo in the Greek. And... Uh, prostrating themselves before him, bowing before him, uh, Jesus would have to uh, uh, warn them not to do that. Peter, you, Cornelius nailed before Peter. Peter said, get up. The Apostle John, twice in the book of Revelation, bowed before angels. They said, get up. But Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, when people bowed before him, he said, bring it on. That's what you were created to do. You were created to worship me, the God of creation, the God who sustains us in existence, our God and Savior. And, um, and so because of this, then verse 10, and you are complete in Christ. You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So Jesus is not just the head of the church. As Paul mentioned earlier, so well, he's the head of the church, but he's not the head of the world. No, he's the head of the whole creation, whether you like it or not. He's our head, the head of the church, because we voluntarily submit to him and trust in him alone for salvation. But if Bill Gates or Satan and his demons, if they think that Jesus is not in authority over them, they're mistaken, okay? You met, let me, here's a biblical formula that was always true and will always be true. You mess with Jesus, you lose, okay? You mess with Jesus, you lose. The Bible doesn't say, you, you know, you mess with uh, cultural Marxism, you lose. No, no. In the end, uh, the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he's coming back. He's going to reign upon the earth. He's going to reign over the whole universe for all eternity. And, uh, and so Jesus, we're complete in him. We don't need anything beyond him. We're complete in him, and he is not only the head of the church, but he's the head of all principality and, and power. He's even the head uh, of the angels, even the fallen angels. So the idea that they would demote Jesus to the status of angelic beings and say he's one of many go-betweens, one of many intermediaries between God and men? No. Jesus alone, there is one God, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we don't need all these other uh, angels and entities. Uh, we're complete in Christ. Okay? And, uh, and then because of this, Paul says, in verses 11 to 13, that there's no need for Gentiles to get physically circumcised. There's no spiritual, religious need for non-Jews 
to get physically circumcised. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews uh, started with Abraham to show that they were distinct, to keep them separate from the nations who were worshiping false gods, to get in covenant with the God of Israel, the males had to be circumcised. Now, originally, adult males had to get circumcised, but then eventually, when you have a baby, you circumcise the, the male on the eighth day. And that was the way that circumcision never saved, but it said, this child will be brought up in God's covenant with the nation of Israel. This child, we will place this child under the law of Moses, the Old Testament law and the Old Testament diet and things of that sort. And so in the Old Testament, when Gentiles wanted to worship the God of Israel, the Gentiles had to convert to Judaism and get circumcised and place themselves under the law. Now that Jesus has come, the gospel has, been, has spread to all mankind, and now Gentiles do, do not have to get circumcised. They don't place themselves under the law. Remember Galatians 3.23, the law was a substitute teacher, a tutor to lead us to Christ. And now that we have faith in Jesus, we're no longer under the law. Okay? And uh, it, there's God's absolute moral laws, eternal moral laws, they remain the same. But the ceremonial aspects, the Jewish diet, the Jewish feast days, we're not to judge people for not adhering to them uh, because God's word says that they were just a shadow. We're going to see that in verses 16 and 17. They're just a shadow of the substance. The real thing is Jesus. And they pointed forward as signs or symbols or types to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, we can still go back and study all that Old Testament stuff and say, wow, that's really cool, but see how it pointed to Jesus and then focus on Jesus. Why? Because you're complete in Christ. Okay? So, I mean, on a bad, we all have bad days where we think, you know, I, Jesus is great, but I need one other thing, you know? I need that Corvette, that brand new car, or I need the bigger house, or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, but hopefully we won't, even on our bad days, you know what? I need more than Jesus to get saved. Because, you know, I need more than Jesus to grow in Christ. No, you don't. We're complete in Christ. And so, uh, we're complete in Christ, and so we'll look at verses 10 uh, through or 11 through 13. There's no need for physical circumcision for Gentiles. Verses 11 through 13. In him, in Christ, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this is a spiritual circumcision. A spiritual separation from the world not a physical distinction or physical separation. In him, in him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay? So, in Christ, we are circumcised in the heart, not in the flesh. <clears throat> Paul talked about this in Romans. Now, in your notes, in your handouts that that we have, if you didn't grab one, they're <clears throat> back there at the table. I've got a typo. It says Romans 1, 28 and 29. No, it's actually Romans 2, 28 and 29. There Paul talks about the true circumcision. Romans 2, 28 and 29. <clears throat> For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So you have many people who are physical Jews, but they're not spiritual Jews. They're not saved. They reject Jesus. You have many people who physically <clears throat> are not Jews. They're Gentiles, like myself. And they're not physically Jews, but they're spiritually Jews because they've been circumcised in the heart. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, a true Jew who is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. Not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, by the way, Paul is not saying, uh, he's going to refute that idea. Paul is not saying, later on in the book of Romans, he's not saying that there's no benefit to being a physical Jew. There's much benefit to being a physical Jew, especially if you come to Christ for salvation and you're also a spiritual Jew. God does not owe me, well, he doesn't owe any man anything, but God's not going to give me a piece, a slice of the promised land. That was promised to the physical Jews who accept God's promise of salvation. So, you know, if I get, you know, half a block in North New Jersey, that's, that's good enough for me, man. You know, I just, I just want to be there when King Jesus comes back and reigns upon the earth. But, um, but the promise, when Jesus rules over the world from Israel, from Jerusalem, and rules over the world, um, there are certain promises give, given to believing Jews that are not given to believing Gentiles. But we all share the same eternal life. When Jesus comes back, our, our mortal bodies will put on immortality, okay? And bodies that will never die are resurrection, glorified bodies. But what Paul is talking about in Colossians 2 is this true circumcision of the heart, okay? And what is that true circumcision of the heart? That, that spiritual true circumcision of the heart, it's called, the Bible calls it regeneration. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you are born again, if the Holy Spirit, if you, when you trust in Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit gives you the new birth, you're born again, you're born spiritually, and you're not who you used to be. The old you is dead, okay? And now you live new life uh, in, in Christ. And um, look at Philippians. I don't have this in your notes there, but when, we, when I preach through Philippians... We spoke about this, Philippians 3.3. 3. Philippians 3.3, 3. and Paul says this to the Philippians, for we are the circumcision. And I like the translations that bring out, that's literally, we are the circumcision. It brings out the idea, we are the true circumcision. Who worship God in the flesh? No, who worship God in the spirit. So the true circumcision is in the spirit, for we are the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Okay? So if we're of the true circumcision, in Christ we're circumcised in the heart, we're born again, not of the flesh. Okay? If we're of the new circumcision, the true circumcision, then we should live consistently with that and put... No confidence in the flesh. Okay? There may be some of us here that are true believers. We've been spiritually circumcised. We've been born again. But we still think. All of us have a little bit of this. Some of us may have more than others. But you've got to try to allow the Holy Spirit to get it out of you. And, uh, but we have this confidence like... There's certain things that I do or that you do that we think we do it so well, we can tell, you, tell the Holy Spirit, you could stay on the sidelines right now. Watch me work. You're going to be impressed with what I can do. Okay? Probably, now, uh, some of you are going to hear what I'm going to say and going to say, uh, wow, this guy's hurting then if that's the case. But, but probably one of the best things I do is preaching. Okay? If I'm properly assessing the talents and the gifts God has given me, um, probably the best thing I, I do is, is, one of the best things I do is preaching. Okay? Um, yet, how many times do we pray that God anoints this fallible guy before he gets behind the pulpit to preach? Why do we do that? Some visitors visit our church and they think we're nuts because we keep praying that. You know they, they, you know, they probably sit back and think, who is this loser 
that you got to pray so hard before he gets, and so many times before he gets behind the pulpit for fear he's going to lead everybody astray. Um, that's just being of the true circumcision and recognizing that I should put no confidence in the flesh. So your confidence should not be in me or if John or Pat or Willis are preaching, your confidence should not be in them. It should be in the Lord. And when we preach, our confidence should not be in the flesh. Okay? When you, you put, you realize when you put confidence in your flesh, in your own ability to please God through your own strength, you're going right back to Cain's sacrifice. I can offer a bloodless sacrifice to God and he'll accept the work of my hands because my work is that good. It's acceptable to God. No, it's not. You need Abel's blood sacrifice. You need to come to God through Jesus because you're not worthy enough to get there on your own. And, um, and so we have no need for physical circumcision because in Christ we've been reborn. We've been circum circumcised in the heart, not the flesh. So going back to Colossians 2, so, so Paul says, look, okay, we don't have a need for physical circumcision. And then verse 12, he says we've been, you know, been circumcised by Christ, buried with him in baptism. Now he's talking about the new covenant, uh, one of the two church ordinances, the Lord's Supper and water baptism. We've been buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him, through faith. So we enter into this covenant not through circumcision, not through works and human effort, not through the works of the flesh. We enter into this covenant through faith, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Okay? So, let's unpack that a little. We Gentile believers have no need for physical circumcision because Jesus has circumcised us in the heart when we trust in Jesus for salvation. By the way, Jews who have been circumcised, when they trust in Jesus for salvation, they get the spiritual circumcision as well. It makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And, uh, and, there's, and Gentiles are not second-class Christians either, okay? And uh, so we've been regenerated. We have the new birth. But our water baptism shows that we died with Christ and we are raised to new life. We died with him and we were raised with him, okay? And uh, so look at Romans 6. Paul covers this in a little more depth in Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 to 9. Romans 6, verses 3 to 9. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when we get water baptized, water baptism doesn't save you. There are some scholars that disagree on that point. I think the Bible is clear. We are saved by God's grace alone. It's a free gift. Can't earn it. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, through trusting alone in Jesus alone. So we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus alone. But then, to become part of the church the assembly of true believers, and to publicly announce before others that we belong to Jesus, we get baptized. And when we get baptized, when we go under the water, we're identifying with Jesus' death and burial. When you get baptized, you're saying, when Jesus died and was buried, I want that to count for me. When you come out of the water, you're identifying with Jesus' bodily resurrection. 
And you're saying, I want Jesus' bodily resurrection to count for me. Okay? And so there's a symbolism there. Water baptism is an outward sign of the inward baptism, spirit baptism that you receive when you trust in Jesus for salvation. Okay? And you're saying, when Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, I identify with that, and, and I want that to count for me. So you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, you've been baptized into his death. Verse 4 in Romans 6, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I don't know, I don't know, like, did this last week or whatever or throughout your walk with the Lord, do you walk around saying, you know what, uh, I've been risen to new life. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old me is dead. I do not have to get angry like I, like I got angry when I was a uh, non-believer. I don't have to blow my top. I don't have to treat people like trash like I used to. That's the old Phil Fernandez. The old Phil Fernandez is dead. Now I'm a new creation in Christ. Through spirit baptism, I'm, with Christ, I'm dead and buried and now raised to new life. Okay? So I don't have to be who I used to be. And, uh, and so we should also walk in newness of life. In other words, if the old you is dead, you ought to live like the old you is dead. If you've been raised to new life, and you're a new creation in Christ, you ought to live like a new creation in Christ. Verse 5, Romans 6, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and the bod that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. Okay? And so uh, it, it's real clear here that, you know, Paul is saying, look, we don't need, as Gentiles, we don't need to be outwardly, physically circumcised for religious or spiritual reasons. You know, some cultures, they still do it for health reasons. That's a whole different thing, okay? Um, but we don't need to be circumcised, but now our baptism shows that we have identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and so we need to live um, new life uh, in, in Christ. Um, and so we are no longer ruled by the flesh. We're raised with him. We died with Christ and we're raised with him through faith. Paul says in this passage, we're no longer ruled by the flesh. We are now new creations in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that we are new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay? Um, you might want to worry about it if you've been saved or you think you've been saved for 10 years and you go back and visit your relatives and they just keep saying yeah you're the old guy I remember you're the same guy you used to be now keep in mind there every once in a while I had one Marine Corps one one Marine Corps buddy who when he got saved there wasn't much outward change because the guy was already outwardly was pretty good guy okay and so there wasn't a whole lot of outward change. And, um, you know, so God was cleaning him up on the inside. Whereas my other Marine Corps buddies were like me. When I got saved, there was a whole lot of outside behavioral stuff that needed to be cleaned up on. But sometimes we got to, you know, we got to wonder, you know, if uh, my, um, you know, my mother used to hear me get in an argument with somebody after I got saved. And I'd say, okay, well, whatever. And, and just walk away and my mom would be whatever happened to you Phil you never back down from anybody whatever happened to you it was like all I'm doing is turning the other cheek 
You know, when I was unsaved, her, her fear was I'd grow up to be a murderer. Um, but after I got saved, she missed the old guy, you know, the potential murderer guy. And now she was all upset that, um, that I was this, uh, I don't know, and her, I guess if you're, she was full-blooded Italian from North New Jersey, if you ever surrendered in an argument, it would be, it would question your manhood or something, I don't know. And, uh, but she saw a change, and I'm glad she saw a change. God, I'm telling you, when I have a bad day, I don't see the change. And if I have a bad day, you're not going to see the change either. And, um, but, you know, we've been raised, we've, we've died and we're buried with Christ. We've been raised with him to new life. The old you is dead. I hope and pray that none of us ever have a situation where we share our testimony with others and they're sitting there, we tell them how miserable we were before we got saved and then we tell them that Jesus saved us 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I hope and pray that nobody would look at us and say, well, what changed? You're still the same guy you used to be. James, the half-brother Jesus, used to deal with people like that. He told them, look, uh, faith without works is dead. If you really believe, it's going to change your life. True saving faith will produce good works and, uh, and a changed life. So we're no longer ruled by the flesh. Those are selfish desires. Okay, we're new creations in Christ. Sometimes, sometimes it's not just um, um, sometimes it's not just temptations to sin and doing sinful things. Sometimes it's just we just focus too much on ourselves and focus too much on our own on our problems rather than focusing on Jesus, the problem solver. Okay, remember when Jesus was walking on water. And then Peter said something that none of us would say. I don't know why people, I don't you know. If that's you, Jesus, command me to walk on the water. It's like, dude, what are you, what are you talking? Stay in the boat, Peter, you know. So, but now there's only, you know, only two guys who ever walked on water, and they were both Jewish. One happened to be God. The other guy probably should have stayed in his lane, okay? But, um, but whatever the case, he's, but when he looked at Jesus, he was walking. But when he looked at, at the waves and the wind, he started sinking, and then he cried out for Jesus to save him. Jesus reached out his hand and saved him, and then talked about how little faith he had. He's like, well, he's the, only, he's the only other guy, Jesus, who walked on water. That's that When Jesus is saying, no, if he, if he had more trust in me, we could have spent a decent amount of time walking on the water. But he took his eyes off the problem solver, Jesus, and put him on his problems. Okay? What if, what if King David took his eyes off of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and focused on the, took his eyes off the problem solver and put him on the problem? Well, his problem was over nine feet tall. He was an undefeated warrior. How do we know he was undefeated? Because he was still alive. All the other guys he fought, he killed. And he thought he was going to add little David to the list. So our problems are often bigger than us, but Jesus is bigger than any problem we'll ever face. And uh, David had his focus on the problem solver, the Lord Jesus. But many times, so there's, there's times we're not just actively being sinful, living by the flesh. Sometimes we're living by the flesh just that we focus more on our problems than on Jesus, the problem solver. Now, I'm not saying just pretend you don't have those problems. Acknowledge that they're there, but then turn it over to the Lord Jesus. Put them at the foot uh, of the cross. And if he doesn't remove the problem, he'll sustain you and cause you to endure in the midst uh, of that problem. Uh, but we're new creations in Christ. We're no longer ruled um, by the flesh. And... Um, and then uh, Paul tells us that Gentiles are made alive in Christ. Verses 14 and 15, back in Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, 
and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the list of all the Old Testament laws that, that we violated and all of the sinful acts that we've disobeyed God's moral commands, that list, Jesus nailed it uh, to the cross, okay? Having disarmed principalities and powers, those are high-ranking angelic beings. He made a public skeptical of them, triumphing over them in it, okay? And so we were dead in our sins and uncircumcised in the flesh, we Gentiles, but God made us alive in Christ. He forgave us our sins and canceled our debt to the law. He nailed it to the cross. Do, do you have a debt to God's holiness and God's righteousness? You did. Until once you trusted in Jesus for salvation, that was nailed to the cross. That's why Jesus said it is finished from the cross. He, he's saying it's, 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 it's done. I took the punishment of all mankind on that cross. It's been nailed to the cross. Now, if you don't trust in Jesus for salvation, you don't get the benefits from that. But, um, but God canceled our debt to the law. That's what forgiveness is, is the canceling of debt. And uh, it was nailed to the cross. And then Jesus triumphed over the demonic power, the fallen angels, through his cross and resurrection. Jesus has conquered all. That's why he is the firstborn ruler over all creation. He is sovereign over all creation. Don't demote Jesus and put him into a category with others. He is still, yes, he became one of us, but Jesus is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? He is still the God of Israel. He is still the creator. And he alone is our redeemer. So don't just take Jesus and stick him in a category with either great men or angelic beings like the false teachers who were leading the Colossians astray were doing. Um, through his cross and resurrection, he conquered all. He's the firstborn ruler over all creation. He triumphed um, over the demonic powers, the, the fallen angels. He made a public spectacle of them, a public spectacle of them, um, this was in, in ancient combat when you would defeat uh, another nation in combat. The victors, the victorious nation, they would have their king and their generals would lead this big parade through, usually through their capital city, sometimes through other cities as well in their kingdom. But not only would the victorious warriors be in the parade, but you also had the prisoners of war. And you'd make a laughing stock out of them, a spectacle of them. And they'd have torn clothes. Some of them would be hobbling along with an injured leg. Some of them would be missing an arm. They'd be all battered and beaten with the scars of war. Some of them, their clothes would be torn. Some of them were just, and they'd all be chained, by the ways. So these guys are all chained, hand and foot, kind of the slow part of the parade. And, uh, and the people would laugh at them. Maybe you'd throw some, some garbage at them. And, uh, but it'd make a public skeptical, a spectacle of them. And, and it's, uh, uh, some of them would just be totally naked if their clothes were just torn. Just total humiliation. Okay? Even Isaiah chapter 5 talks about that. When, um, to, to me, it's one of the funnier chapters of the Bible where God has Isaiah, I'm glad I'm not a prophet, as Isaiah prophesied before the king for uh, 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 naked, because the Jews are going to be naked, and King James reads, naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered. And, and that's the way prisoners of war were paraded, just their shame on display before everybody. And God was saying, look, if you don't give it my program, this is what your punishment is going to be. And... Um, um, why in the world would we demote Jesus to the level of even high-ranking angelic beings, fallen and unfallen? Why in the world would we do that when the highest-ranking fallen angels who opposed him? Jesus made a total laughingstock out of him. 
And he paraded them before the whole universe. If you have spiritual eyes to see, you see that. Satan and his high-ranking fallen angels, they've been defeated. You know, the scriptures talks about the seed of the woman who is Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Would suffer in the process. But Satan, when he had Jesus, he led the leaders of this world to, to crucify Jesus. He thought, good, we killed him, we won. No, Jesus took the cross and resurrection to crush the head of the serpent. And then Jesus uh, publicly paraded the prisoners of war and made a laughing stock out of them. So then in the remainder of the chapter, Paul tells us that we are set free from the law. And so look at Colossians 2 and verse 16. So let no one judge you. Now, if, if this was the modern-day American politically correct Bible, we would just put a period there. Um, uh, so let no one judge you, period. But that's not, there's not a period there. Okay? We take many verses out of context. Um, the Matthew 7, 1, if you want to avoid judgment, stop passing judgment. So everybody says, see, don't judge. Never judge. You read the whole passage in its proper context, we're actually being commanded to judge. It's like, look, if you, if you got something to hide, if you got what some preachers have called sloppy agape, agape love, and you say, if you're walking sliming in your walk with the Lord, you got no business judging another brother. You got to first take the log out of your eye, Jesus says. Then when you're squared away, when you've allowed the Holy Spirit to clean up your act, then you can help a Christian brother or a Christian sister take the splinter out of their eye. If you're addicted to heroin, you got no business helping a guy to stop smoking pot. Okay? You got to allow the Holy Spirit to, to clean up. So there, all we're being told is don't hypocritically judge others. Okay? But the Bible tells us different times when we're to judge, when we're not to judge. We're not to judge hypocritically. We're not to judge people's motives. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians um, uh, chapter 5, we're not to judge non-believers. Non-believers are already judged. Now, when we, when we say that, you know, homosexuality is a sin, when, when we say that um, uh, abortion, we're opposed to abortion, it's killing unborn babies and things of that sort, we're just proclaiming this is God's moral standards. But that doesn't mean you come across... Uh, someone who's involved in these sins and, and it's your job to condemn them. They're already condemned. It's your job to give them the good news of salvation through Jesus who can not only uh, set them free from the punishment of sin but can also set them free from the power of sin. And um, so we don't judge non-believers. Uh, we're going to see in this passage we don't judge based on the Old Testament ceremonial law. And so we'll see that in just a minute. We don't judge the weaker brother. Sometimes you have a weaker brother who knows they're saved by Jesus but thinks that they grow in the Lord. They have to place themselves under an Old Testament diet or whatever it may be. We don't judge the weaker brother. We, we try not to be a stumbling block to them. But the Bible does tell us we do judge fellow believers when it comes to morality and false doctrine, false teachings. Now, all Christians... You know, there are, there's disagreements on non-essentials to the Christian faith. And um, so uh, we don't agree on every. If we agree on everything, then only one of us is thinking. Okay? And, um, and so we have disagreements on non-essential things. But if you're a true believer, you've you, you got to believe that the one true God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one true God created the heavens and the earth. Um, we're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. It's by God's grace. That Jesus was, is God incarnate. God become a man. Um, he was born of a virgin. Died on the cross for our sins. Bodily rose from the dead. He will return someday. The Bible's God's word without error. These are things that all believers should agree on. Okay? Um, 
But how do you baptize? Yeah, I'm convinced when you baptize, you fully dunk. But we got a lot of our Christian friends that sprinkle. Okay? And, um, you know, it's one of those areas, just, just unity in Christ. Unity in the non unity on the essentials. And then we can disagree. There could be diversity on the non-essentials. Okay? And, um, but, um, but as being saved um, in Christ, um, we, still, we still need to judge fellow believers if God's calling us to. If Chris has a buddy and he says, well, this guy, uh, you know, he said, claims he's a Christian and stuff, but he never goes to church and he's a healthy guy. And uh, then it's, it's Chris's job to judge him. And then encourage him to do the right things. Find yourself a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. You don't look down on the person, but you want to help them in, in their walk. Okay? If, um, if you got a Christian friend, and they're making bad choices, so they're like blindfolded walking towards the edge of a cliff, okay? The godly thing to do the gracious thing to do would be to get up there, judge them as moving in the wrong direction, remove the blindfold, and plead with them to stop going in the direction they're going. Now, modern-day America, you're told, no, you might hurt their self-esteem. Well, I don't think a lot of people care about self-esteem when they're falling off a cliff. Okay? Spiritually speaking, we got non-believers. We got to we got to proclaim the gospel. But, um, um, but even with believers, uh, if they have false teachings in, in important areas or uh, they have a moral failure, uh, we need to acknowledge that what they're doing is wrong, need to share that with them, and try to get them to turn away from their willful, habitual sin. Now, keep in mind, the Bible also tells us we're supposed to examine ourselves. So God doesn't give us the, uh, the gift of judging. So with our Christian brothers and sisters, just make sure that you don't have that log in your eye when you're trying to help a Christian brother or sister with the splinter in their eye, you know. And um, you know, every once in a while, I'll have a friend who's a, a Christian who, who can't kick the smoking habit. And some people have gotten on my case, you're a pastor, you need to be tougher on them about the smoking. I said, oh, you know, I talk to them once in a while about it, but it's not, I don't make that big of a deal out of it. He said, well, why don't you make that big of a deal out of it? I said, because he might, he might see me eating breakfast. He might see me driving through McDonald's, you know, stuff like that. Um, I mean, it's just like, you know, hey, I got, I got some issues I got to let go of as well. And, um, you know, how can I, what am I supposed to do? Say, hey, look, dude, you, you keep smoking like that, you're going to take 12 years off your life expectancy and then he turns around and says, yeah, well, you, you go to McDonald's so much, you're probably taking 10 years off your life experience. I mean, I don't want to play that game, you know? So, uh, so uh, now if you're that health nut, that health nut eats real well and stuff like that, yeah, then maybe you can be a little more assertive in, in helping people there. But Paul says here in verses 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths, like the Sabbath day, and then you even have Sabbath years, the Old Testament ceremonial law, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So the shadow, even the, even the Old Testament sacrifices, you know, the holy place, the, mo the holy holies and the holy place in the temple was covered with animal skin. So you had the special presence of God enclosed in skin. We, what, do you think that's, what do you think that's pointing to? That God is going to become a man, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, Colossians 2.9. The animal sacrifice, the bloodshed of animals doesn't take away sins, but it points forward to the day when God would send the Lamb of God who would shed his blood and take away the sins of mankind. The Old Testament feast days, it all pointed forward. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. Okay? 
Jesus baptized the church on the Feast of Pentecost. And so the Old Testament ceremonial laws, uh, they were a mere shadow, that shadows that pointed forward to Jesus. The reality is in Jesus. Jesus is the real thing. What was it, Coca-Cola? They used to say that the old commercials, and I'm, I'm dating myself here, Coke, it's the real thing. And they'd sing about Coca-Cola. It's like, you know, really, your life is that bad that you're going to sing songs about Coca-Cola? They probably sold a lot, of, a lot of Cokes, whatever. But no, Jesus is the real thing. Amen. And the Old Testament law was good, given to us by God, but it pointed forward to Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, we should not judge uh, one another concerning food or drink or feast days or a new moon or Sabbaths because they're a shadow of things to come but the substance has come, and that is the Lord Jesus. By the way, when it says that don't let anybody judge you in food or in drink, this is, you know, Paul is not saying, you know, eat junk food. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, but just go ahead and get drunk all the time. Eat garbage food. Be a glutton. You know, no, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. You've got to take care of it. So for our physical well-being, you might have advice for another Christian that, um, and, and I, I like having, now some of them get on my nerves because they do it too much, but I like having godly Christians giving me advice on my diet. You know, they'll see me eating Cheetos or something, and they'll be, eh, you know, this stuff, stuff will kill you. Remember Bill Gremmer, uh, the godly man Bill Gremmer used to try to get me to just cut out sugar. And I knew he was right, man. He showed me all the evidence. I didn't even need to see the evidence. I knew I was killing myself eating. It's kind of the slow way to suicide. But it's, I don't know. There was this guy, Mr. Hershey. And <laughs> he did some things with chocolate that just kind of, you know. And, um, but, and then you get, I get friends that are trying to convince me that for my physical well-being, I need to be a vegetarian. Then I hang out with the keto people, and it's like, no, forget the veggies, man. You just, you just need lots and lots of meat and a high-fat diet. Not only get rid of the sugars, get rid of the carbs, too. I grew up on pasta. How, how am I going to do that? You know, so, so it's kind of like, you know, who am I to believe, you know? And you get guys who just like full vegetable diet and stuff like that. But none of those guys, if they found something that works for them, and is extending their lifespan, none of those guys are sinning by trying to give me encouragement about getting on a good diet. Now, if they said, you have to change your diet to get closer to God, I'm complete in Christ. What's the, what's the only diet issue where God says, you do this, and you'll get closer to him? Fasting. If you fast, now you got to properly fast, okay? I've had some times where uh, I just forgot to eat the whole day, and then I realized like 11 o'clock at night I'm getting ready to lay down, and I was like, wait a minute. If I just go to sleep now, wake up at 6, and don't eat breakfast till 8, I'll have 24 hours. I'm going to count that as a fast. No, that doesn't count as a fast. That's just being too stupid to remember to eat, okay? And um, uh, a, a, a true fast would be, hey, Lord, I'm going to set aside this amount of time, okay? I don't recommend a 40-day fast. A lot of great Christian leaders died within a year or two after a 40-day fast. Jesus was in good shape, okay? Reverend so-and-so, I don't think you're in that kind of shape. It's, but... but but some people do a 24-hour or, or a 36-hour or 48-hour fast or whatever it may be. You want to drink water, stay hydrated. If you have diabetes, you want to talk to Dr. No. But that time, all that time period, you're supposed to be focused on the Lord and in prayer. Okay? You can work and still pray while you're working and all. Um, and so, yeah, there's a certain amount of, we're going to see this next week, asceticism, where you're depriving your body of its physical needs temporarily to draw closer to God. So you're putting your focus on God and your spiritual needs. And that would be things like, like fasting and prayer, okay? Um, but it's not the asceticism 
of these ancient false teachers where you're, you're beating your bodies. You know, some of the Gnostic cults, because they believed the physical realm was totally evil, they thought the best thing you could do is to beat your body. Other Gnostic cultists say, well, if the flesh is already evil, I can just commit gross immorality. It doesn't really matter because the flesh is not going to get any more evil than it was to begin with. Whatever the case, these uh, Gnostic mystery cultists who were trying to lead the Christians astray, they were into asceticism and depriving the body and beating the body. And, um, but um, when it comes to pleasing God, in other words, pick a good diet, fast as the Lord leads you to, but pick a good diet because your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit and for your physical well-being. But don't think if you put yourself under an Old Testament diet that's automatically going to make you closer to God. Paul is very, very clear on that. He deals with it also in Romans 14. And um, um, if God told me in his word, take bacon out of your diet, I'd do it. But I have freedom in Christ, and that includes eating bacon. So, so I confess to you, a lot of pigs have died due to my, my physical appetite. But whatever the case, um, we're not to judge people based on the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, the diet, the feast days, the Sabbath days, that all pointed forward to Jesus. Now Jesus has come. And our focus should be on him. So let's close with a, with a word of prayer. And we'll pick it up there next week. Father, in Jesus' precious name, uh, may we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over all. May we acknowledge that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. May we acknowledge that many of the truths in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus, the the um, theme of the Old Testament is not the law of Moses. The theme of the Old Testament is what the law of Moses pointed forward to. The theme of the Old Testament, just as the theme of the New Testament, is Jesus. Jesus is the meaning of life, knowing him, being known by him, making him known to others. That's what life is all about. So we are complete in Christ. He is our God our creator, our redeemer, our savior, and he is the firstborn over all creation. And so may we be satisfied with the Lord Jesus. May we not think that rules and regulations have to be added uh, to Jesus um, for us to live the overcoming life. Yes, you've called us to study your word. Yes, you've called us to gather together and worship you and to pray and, um, and to obey your word. Uh, but may we understand that we are complete in Christ and we need to do those things that bring us closer to Jesus and not get all caught up on rules and regulations and technicalities that um, would take our focus off of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Become a man our Creator, and our Savior. Let us be satisfied with King Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.